Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for the week of February, February early, early February. Uh, as I said, my name is Tom Chick, and I feel it's important to start off right off the bat by stating that my game of the week is not Kingdoms of Amalur, The Reckoning. Mm. Uh, I'm Jason McMaster. My game of the week is not Grab Ass. That's not. A, is that a game, McMaster? Um, I think so. A little hobby. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> is that a game or a way of life? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I cut off our, our third very special guest of the, our host of the week. Chris, sorry. Jump on in there. Sorry. Uh, my name is Chris Gardner, and my game of the week is not Farmville. Oh, you know, there. well, I'll be curious to, to talk to you a bit about why that is, but stand by for that. Uh, Chris, I feel it's important to say uh, for folks listening you are not in America. This is true. You are, it sounds like a New Zealand accent. Am I close? Uh, the, basically, yes. Yes, just next door. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, do, uh, uh, like, Americans, you guys all sound like you're from Australia, New Zealand, England, Scotland, <laughs> Ireland. It's all the same to us. Why don't you narrow down your geographic uh, accent a little more uh r- a little more finely for those of us listening? Where are you actually located, and where do you sound like you're from? Uh, I am located in Great Britain, um, specifically England, and a tiny village in England called Bottisford. Wait a minute, are you making that last part up? Cause no, I- no, it is actually called Bottisford, and it's in the Vale of Beaver, so, yes. I don't believe either one of those things, but I'm, I'm sorry, Ultra. So, Bottisford in the Vale of Beaver, did you just say? Yes, yes, that's right. Now, Beaver, of course, that's interesting right there, but what the heck is a vale? A va- like a valley. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. not a county. Like in Massachusetts, they have commonwealths, whereas other states in America have counties. But uh, the, it's, not like a, it's not like a political organization. You're actually referring to a valley? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really charming, Chris, that you put it Because <laughs> I live in the uh, Los Angeles Basin, I think. Like We call it a basin, and it's just so boring compared to That's a like hole. It is, it is. It's like a hole. Like you would dig something. It's where you'd take a bath <laughs> if you didn't have a tub. You would dig a basin in your backyard, fill it with muddy water, and there you go. <laughs> uh, now, Chris, I also feel it's important to let listeners know you are. Uh, you you emailed me and said, "Hey, I'd love to be a guest on the podcast." And I was like, "Sure." We we signed you up, uh, and it was only after that that you mentioned. And by the way, I uh, work on a game, and I know that McMaster and I are very eager to talk to you about this game. Uh, but I didn't really realize what I was in for when you mentioned your game. You mentioned the game, and I was like, "Oh, this poor fellow's got a free to play Facebook thing going." I I, sh- I should probably look at it to be polite. Um, <laughs> But well, you were only, very convincing then. <laughs> well, it was only after the fact that we'd signed you up that I realized, whoa, this guy's working on a game that I kind of dig. So you are not – it was sort of a cart before the horse thing. Like I would have loved to have gotten one of the developers of this game on to talk about it, uh, but it just so happened. It was very fortuitous the way that all uh, spun out. But before we talk about the game, uh, so you were in the Vale of Beaver in B- Bottisworth. <laughs> Bottisford. Bottisford. Bottisford, England. That is lovely. The Ford of Bot. 
Now, is that where you're from, or did you arrive there from elsewhere? I uh, ended up here. I was born in uh, Birmingham, which is neither a valley nor as charming as uh, Bottisford. No, we all know Birmingham, because I think uh, McMaster spent some time in Alabama. Is that not correct? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, actually. Oh, well, we we were probably neighbors. We probably went to the same school together. I would think so. Yeah, you probably know some of the same people. And so after Mm -hmm. the podcast, stick around, and you guys can say, hey, did you know so-and-so? You can do that whole thing. Uh, We could find each other in the yearbook. I bet we could. Horrible. Uh, Now, Chris, what was your line of work before your current job? Uh, Actually, you know what? I may be making an assumption. Is your current job your, your first job, or had you been doing other stuff for a while? No, I'd done other stuff for a while. I worked uh, in uh, higher education for a while. I supported uh, students with disabilities, and then I worked in um, uh, administration at a university. Mm-hmm. Now, university in England is what we call, I think, elementary school in And how long have you been doing what you currently do? Uh, about six months, I guess. Ah, so you're the new guy there. I am, yes. You know what? Let's jump into this because I'm dying to start talking about this. I'm champing at the bit here. You work at a place called Fail Better Games. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us about that place. Oh, Fail Better Games. Well, everything you've heard is probably true. Uh, It's a a small uh, company uh, that employs uh, six people, and uh, we make... Uh, we make role-playing games and story-based games and uh, narrative games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, sorry, no, go on. And, and what, uh, so there's six of you there. Uh, it sounds tiny. Um, what, uh, tell me a bit about what your specific job is at Fail Better. Uh, I'm a staff writer at Fail Better. We have, uh, I think, three staff writers um, because... Uh, writing content and writing stories is the, the vast bulk of what we do. Um, uh, we also have a, uh, a, a highly skilled uh, code monkey, a very impressive technical person called Henry, and uh, a chief illuminating officer who does all our art and design, and a uh, chief narrative officer who does absolutely everything else. Is there anyone who works at Fail Better who is not an officer? Uh, I'm not an officer. I'm, 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 I'm barely, barely a peon. All right, well, we wish you luck uh, making your way to officerhood eventually. (laughs) Uh, Have any of you, I feel this is also important for uh, my American listeners to know, have any of you been knighted yet? Not yet, but I feel it is only a matter of time. (laughs) I think so as well. Uh, All right, well, uh, tell us, how do you explain the the fail better game that McMaster and I have been playing and that I have fallen in love with (laughs) is called Echo Bazaar, and how do you sell, because it seems like so long ago, Chris, you contacted me, uh, so I don't really remember how you exactly told me about it to get me to click on it and try it. But how do you sell Echo Bazaar? What, what, how do you explain it to someone who's never heard of it, who has no idea what they're in for? Uh, so Echo Bazaar is a casual, uh, narrative-driven role-playing game that you can play in your browser. Um, it's, I guess it's most similar to sort of a, a choose-your-own-adventure style book, except it's um, completely non-linear. Uh, it's much more expansive, uh, and uh, it, it's much more of a, a world that you can explore uh, at your own pace, rather than a, a single storyline that you're you're progressing through. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I I think one of the things that probably singles it out a bit is the setting, uh, yes. which is uh, fallen London. Um, 
I, well, I, I, I'm sure you gentlemen will remember that the year 1889 was a, a, a very difficult one for London, uh, because that's the year in which it was stolen by bats and dragged beneath the surface of the earth uh, to the shores of a great. It is. It's rough. Yeah, uh, to the shores of a great subterranean sea, uh, just a convenient boat ride from hell, um, uh, which was terribly uh, upsetting and embarrassing for a, a, a good while. It's um, weird. That's that's like my 2011 was. Really? No. Oh, yeah, that was like a boat ride to hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a, but if anything makes London as London as it's the fact that they just sort of get on with it, and there's no point in crying over spilt milk. So they just carry on pretty much as they have done, 15 years on after the fall, and they still uh, write poetry and hold elaborate parties and um, uh, occasionally fight off the horrible monsters that slither from Bugsby Marshes. Oh yeah, sure. And, and so you, you, as you're explaining this, I, I think, well, how on earth could you possibly model that in a what, what's basically a free-to-play browser RPG? Uh, I think that sounds like an awesome place, but, you know, it's not going to be any great graphics. Uh, you know, am, am I going to have to read a lot of backstory? Uh, for, for me, a lot of the beauty of Echo Bazaar is how you guys very gradually tell this story about fallen London. Like, it, it has this great, you know, normally at the beginning of an RPG, you either have amnesia or you're shipwrecked, or you guys even do something similar to, like, I think in Oblivion, you start out in prison. Mm-hmm. So you guys kind of have that beginning where you're just like a prisoner who gets out of prison, and then it starts introducing this world in little bits and pieces. And I'm constantly discovering, I've been playing for like a month now, I'm constantly discovering new kinds of places and things. Like, you just now mentioned Busby Marshes, I think? Yeah. I don't yeah. even think I've heard – I don't know that place yet. I, I, I'm sure that at some point it's going to figure prominently into something. Um, but part of the beauty is how it gradually – you guys gradually unfold this world. And you do it without graphics because – and this is, to me, clutch for what makes it works uh, – for what makes it work. There are, some, there are some really great writers over there. Um, yeah. So what's happened that there are, in this group of six people, three of whom are staff writers, and I think you also maybe get some help. I don't know if it's from the community, but I've certainly seen names in the story credits that I'm assuming aren't folks that work at Fail Better. Uh, We've had well, a few um, freelancers okay. uh, work for us uh, on a few bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. So what happens that uh, of you six people that there is such great writing? How on earth does that work out? Uh, I think... Tremendous talent probably helps, uh, but to be honest, mostly it's that we have a very rigorous uh, we have a very rigorous internal process, uh, and every every word of text uh, that's written is sub-edited and then reviewed. And before uh, text is put into the game, it's all uh, discussed uh, uh, among the whole team first, so we can ensure that we've got a very consistent voice and tone uh, and. Then the, the, the sub-editing and, and review process holds everything to a very high standard, and the process gets refined and refined as it goes through the process, I think. You know, that actually, now that you say that, it didn't occur to me while I'm playing, because I'm playing and I just read a paragraph at a time, and I think, well, there's obviously millions of paragraphs in there, some better than others, but it, it really does have a great sense of consistent tone to it. And I, I have yet to, to encounter this jarring moment where I feel like, eh, that kind of feels out of place, or... Uh, it's kind of weak or it's filler. Uh, you know, there are even there there are some moments where you're kind of grinding stats and you'll click through mm-hmm. text a few times. But even if you've read that text, I mean, I still feel like even those supposedly filler moments have little uh, little 
clever, playful bits of writing in them. Uh, that that's something that we yes and that's something that we had to make a virtue really like you say sometimes you're going to see the same text several occasions so it better be pretty good text really Um, but I think the tone was established early on by um, uh, Alexis Kennedy who's the uh, co-founder of the company and uh, he began uh, writing Echo Bazaar in his bedroom and the first big chunk of it he wrote Uh, and then as more and more of us came on board we had a, a style that we were uh, working towards, mm-hmm. and now uh, Alexis is—he uh, hasn't written most of the text in Echo Bazaar. Nigel Evans, uh, one of our other writers, has, but uh, it's it struck very strongly to that original uh, original vision. So uh, I don't want to minimize the unique feel of it because Echo Bazaar. I can see hints of other things that I love in it, but it really does have its own distinct style and tone and wordplay and, and setting. Uh, but does Alexis or anyone else ever show you guys, like, want you to either watch certain movies or read certain books or look at certain artwork? Uh, does he ever specifically invoke any uh, any inspirations with you guys? Uh, yes. Yeah, quite. I th- and we all, we all do, really. We all sort of suggest mm-hmm. uh, uh, books or works that we think there's something we can draw on in there. But I think one of the things that gives it a, a, a unique feel is its primary inspirations are a lot of classic literature like um, Conan Doyle and G.K. Chesterton and T.S. Eliot. Uh, and I think that sort of thing isn't the sort of stuff you're used to seeing in video games. No, no it's, uh, um, it's very interesting. Mm, so we've got we've got some sort of shades of, of Lovecraft in there, but we don't want to play that too strongly because... Uh, that's something that's much more familiar. And if we go too far down that road, it becomes, uh, I think, a bit more of a, a cliche and something that people are used to seeing. But uh, if you're uh, taking your... In- One of the things that you do a lot of in Echo Bazaar is dreaming, and you have strange dreams when you're down in this city. And uh, the dreams are all inspired by um, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Uh, and uh, it was quite a long while before anyone noticed. Uh, because I guess people aren't used to looking for that in uh, in games. No, yeah, that's uh, that's funny. I, I also I hear you say that, uh, Chris, and that that is so incredibly beautiful, and I'm so happy to hear that. And and I think of uh, a game like Bioshock, which which clearly draws for better or worse from some of the stuff that Anne Rand has written, uh, mm. and that that <laughs> Art think? Deco style. <laughs> but, <laughs> really. <laughs> but that's not something that I think we're used to hearing in video games. The, the, we get the usual inspirations, which are Lord of the Rings or Aliens, that kind of thing. Uh, so when somebody goes out of the bounds to something like Ayn Rand or you, the fact that you mentioned Chesterton, good, I can't believe I didn't think of that. Uh, I, I, I just feel that it's, it's such an incredible service to video gaming when people introduce these other sources, these other inspirations, when they go outside of the usual tropes and avoid the cliches like you're talking about. Uh, and it just feels like this this lovely little prose gift, uh, in a way, <laughs> Echo Bazaar. Uh, so, uh, uh, McMaster, I want you have so you and your wife have been playing a, a fair bit, oh. yes? And in fact, she wanted me to tell you, Chris, that she is mm. now playing in the other room nonstop. Oh, I'm so. very pleased to hear that. 
<laughs> well, now, well, you know what, not, but McMaster, I want to hear about where you and Sarah are in a second. But I, now that you mentioned that, I want to bring up it's not quite nonstop because mm. and well, I, don't want to, I don't want to begrudge any developer having to pay the rent and feed themselves. Uh, y'all's y'all's model, which is kind of changing a little bit and just, mm. I think, today, maybe yesterday, changed even more. Um, yeah. Uh, tell me a bit, Chris, about what your business model is. Obviously, you're free to play. Anybody can jump in. Uh, but there are some – I don't want to use the word limitations because that sounds like it has a judgment. There are some qualifications on that. So tell us a bit about how the business model uh, is evolving. What is it currently, and, and how is that changing? Uh, so the one of the biggest problems we had when Echo Bazaar started is uh, we can't write faster than people read, uh, try as we <laughs> might. Uh, and – uh, unless we had some way of um, uh, pacing people's progress through the game, people would constantly be bumping up against uh, the content limit, um, getting bored, dropping out, not coming back, and see what had happened. Uh, so there are um, uh, qualifications on how many actions you can play at a time. And it used to be the case that there was a daily action cap mm-hmm. of um, uh, 50 if you're a non-subscriber or 100 if you're a subscriber. And then you have... Um, uh, a, a pool of, of 10 or 20 actions you can play at a time, and then you get a new action every uh, uh, every 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea is that you play this, you play Echo Bazaar in your coffee break, and you'll come back to it sort of two or three times a day and play it in little snatches. It's not the sort of game that you would sort of sit and play for two hours at a stretch. And I, I hope we've made that into a virtue uh, as uh, rather than just a, a restriction. What what I eventually the sort of the realization that came to me is I think of it in a way like episodic TV, something that uh, I routinely visit. Um, it's not like sitting down and watching a movie. It's like an ongoing process, and I get it in drips and drabs here and there. So I can sort of reconcile that format there. However, now of course you guys have to monetize this. Um, so tell us a bit about what's the incentive to get people to, to actually spend some money. Uh, so there's a, a, a number of different uh, uh, ways we would like you to spend money on us. Uh, one is um, you can uh, become an exceptional friend, which lets you play more actions at once, uh, lets you play, uh, increases your action bank to 20 from 10. Uh, and another is there are some storylines uh, that you can uh, 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 pay to have access to. And they're never... Um, plot-critical storylines. They're never something that you have to read to understand what's going on. They're never... um, uh, Not playing them uh, won't stop your progress uh, in the game. You can play all the way to the the level cap without having to pay for them. Um, But if you you like uh, the sort of game you've been playing, you can get more of it by uh, uh, buying one of these extra uh, extra storylines. And I have to say, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, and I guess sometimes actually we put in other little options. So sometimes you can, um, uh, often, uh, if, you, if you've taken an action uh, and regret the consequences of it, often you can uh, pay fate to uh, uh, go back and redo it. So if you want to explore another way and see what would have turned out, that's, that's one way you can do it. And does fate, can fate translate directly into echoes, the, the monetary system? Because there's inventory you can no. buy. Ah, good. No. Okay. No. No, it doesn't. I mean, I guess you can play more in a. You can play more if you've got more actions, so you'll right. be earning but, more. But but no, the there's no. You can't just buy into the game's economy. You can't just no. one for one trade real world money for game money. Uh, no, that's right. Right. No. Uh, this is this and this is the 
sort of thing that we discuss a lot in the company. And and like I say, we make, have, we make changes on this um, uh, regularly. We monitor how people are playing and where the game's at and where it needs to go. And so recent, uh, in the last couple of days, we took off the daily action limit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can play as many actions as you want in a day now, and you're just limited by your, uh, uh, your, your action bank. Can I say that I uh, kind of wish you hadn't because uh, <laughs> it used to be that I would do about maybe three or four sessions of Echo Bazaar a day before my limit would run out. And I'd be like, OK, I'm done. I'm going to go do other things. But now I feel like it's I could get in as many sessions a day as I feel like visiting. <laughs> well, sleep taught me for the week. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. That is true. I've told him that many times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, McMaster, tell us a bit about your character and where you are in the storyline, oh, because I think one of the oh. best ways to sell, I can go first if you want, but I think one of the best ways to sell <laughs> Echo Bazaar is to just That's listen to someone story. talk about what they're doing. Um, you know, I'll actually tell, uh, I'll, I'll go first because I, I, yours is probably better. I think you've played more than me at this point, um, though I've played a good bit. And I am an exceptional friend because whenever I, I see a game I like, I like to pay something for it. So, I adore you. Uh, oh well, <laughs> yes. and uh, yeah, so is my wife because she was like, "You are." That uh, was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. Um, then I adore her too, and I hope that won't cause problems between us. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> uh, she's she's much more adorable than I am. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I am. <laughs> I still live in a, in a small room. I don't have the three cards. Uh, do you have three cards, Tom? I do. So one of the ways, uh, just to elaborate real quickly on what Master is talking about, uh, in addition to picking story beats, you get what are called, I think they're called opportunity cards, and you get a little deck of them every day, and it replenishes over time, and you can deal out so many of them and choose amongst them and, and play it as an action instead of a normal story beat. As you move up in the world and move into nicer space, nicer lodgings, you have more cards that you can pull out at once. So McMaster, you, I believe, are just in some... Uh, some lady's lodging house. You get two cards. Yeah. I have moved yeah. into a room above the bookstore. I get three cards. I am too busy punching things to <laughs> worry, worry about where I live. Uh, no, uh, my guy. Uh, he's uh, his highest stat right now is watchful, then followed by dangerous. Um, but uh, I live in a, a small room, and uh, an urchin visits me quite regularly. <laughs> Uh, on a, uh, on the rooftop outside of my house, uh, I've been helping the clay men quite a bit. Um, ah, I don't know if I trust them. They're they're these big strange golems that seem to do manual labor. No, they seem nice enough. They're simple. Right. It's kind of like a Lenny kind of thing, you know. So you're sure. You know, got to think about the rabbits. Um, but Your master, how do you feel about the rubbery men? The rubbery men, I you know, I don't have a lot of exposure to the rubbery men. Um, I, I am currently in the House of Chimes, though, so haha. Ha. You <laughs> oh, that's that's like one of the locations that only exceptional friends can go. Is that correct? Oh, that's right. That, is, that right. is correct. Yes, I'm a, I'm very cool. Um, but I'm a yeah, I'm in the House of Chimes. Uh, but yeah, I've been spending a lot of time actually pursuing the urchin, and uh, I've recently been pickpocketing an old lady uh, that tries to carriage from me, which seems rude, but I'm. I'm kind of a transgender crazy person, so I mean, you know, what do you do? Now, how did that, because I was giving you some guff about that, McMaster. (laughs) In your profile, you were listed as being of indistinct gender. How did you get that? Uh, It's one of the options for um, image, basically, when you pick at the beginning. Uh, Oh, 
it's like strange or weird. I can't remember what it was named, but like you pick in the beginning, and uh, I went with neither male nor female and went for the weird or whatever. And uh, when you yes, when you choose your gender at the start, you can choose male, female, or none of your damn business. So right, oh, right. very nice. Okay, okay. <laughs> so that's uh, that's how I became of. Uh, and distinct gender. Uh, I think my favorite, one of my favorite bits about the game is going to your profile page, which is also how you invite people to the game, of course. But you can set stuff uh, as like things you show on your mantelpiece. Uh, at current, I have a counterfeit head of John the Baptist on my. <laughs> that's one of my personal favorites that I've found so far. So uh, yeah. Oh, and my scrapbook, uh, I also have that I'm connected with hell, uh, level eight, which is not very high, but uh, I'm I'm acquainted with Satan, etc. And that's, no good will come of it. <laughs> no. Now, see, I don't believe that because I love knowing uh, that in Echo Bazaar, a lot of things that seem like you would want to avoid them in other games, like the nightmares, for instance. I was so glad that that got out of control. Normally, I would do whatever I could to keep my nightmares or my wounds or my scandalous rating down. But I love that you guys, what would traditionally maybe be a place where you would punish the player or want the player to avoid this. Uh, it seems like there are rewards in any direction you go. Cool things mm. to see, cool bits to read, uh, and there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of updates. Uh, that's what I, that's one thing I really like. Uh, I, I'm noticing new stuff all the time, you know. Um, and you guys, oh, you added uh, what respectable, dreaded, and bizarre to the list. Yes, now. yes, and we're being very uh, very coy about what they mean, but yes. Oh, I'm so yeah. glad. I'm I'm trying to become dreaded. Uh, I, that's that's uh, my. I don't know how, but I, but I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> My, oh, I'm, I'm working on the devil angle, so we'll have that. It, it can't go wrong. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Wanna, I'm so glad that you guys are being coy because one of the things that I feel about Echo Bazaar is that uh, in in a in a sort of an atmosphere where gamers are used to wikis and facts, um, I, I kind of feel personally like like that might I don't know about harm Echo Bazaar, but it would certainly damage the way I experience it and in, enjoy it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in the game and with the gameplay mechanics that I feel like I don't quite understand or know and i i love discovering them on my own uh i don't know what those three i mean i saw them i know what the three stats are but i don't know why you guys added three stats or where they're going to go or why they have such a prominent place when there's so many other substats for for your character but i don't want to know i want to find out i want the game to tell me those things mm -hmm. uh, so i i'm good on you for being coy about those and you know, not to break in on the Echo Bazaar thing, but I'm also uh, I've also been playing Night Circus some, which I've been enjoying. Uh, oh, good. I know it's coming down soon, though. I believe, isn't it? Uh, no, no, it's uh, uh, it's it's going to be up uh, indefinitely, actually. So oh wow, awesome! So that's the current plan. Yeah. So, Chris, tell us about what Night Circus is. It sounds like it was a great gig for you guys. Uh, yes, so Night Circus is a, uh, a book written by uh, Aaron Morgenstern. Uh, it's uh, also, uh, I guess, kind of Victorian in flavor, and it's set in a, a, a magical, wondrous circus where all sorts of strange things happen. Um, and uh, we were approached to provide a, uh, a, a sort of interactive companion piece to the book, uh, which is uh, the circus itself. So when you go to the, the site, you get to explore the circus and kind of see its sights and meet some of the characters from the book. Um, uh, and, yeah, poke into all its, its nook, the nooks and crannies of all the strange things that go on there. Mm -hmm. uh, now, how big is, is Night Circus? I, I'm, I'm assuming it's a sort of a smaller product than Echo Bazaar. 
Night Circus is a much smaller project than uh, Echo Bazaar. Echo Bazaar is now, I think, a, over 700,000 words, which is like a stone's throw from a Bible. Not that you should throw stones at Bibles <laughs> or anything, but it's, 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 it's a big old thing. Uh, well, if you're working on increasing your connections hell, then you probably will be doing that <laughs> I uh, in the near future. <laughs> Uh, and I, I love to. You can. Uh, I believe that Echo Bazaar is. You. I think you told me almost two years old. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to look at uh, Night Circus and see how in in ways it looks a little bit more refined. It's a much cleaner interface. Uh, I I love the artwork. I mean, it, there's I, I can sort of look at Night Circus as like this is what Echo Bazaar would look like if you guys started it again two years later. Yeah. In some ways, yeah, it's uh, certainly it's it's uh, it's look it kind of shows two years of right. of learning. It's a much simpler game. We can't right. we couldn't tell a lot of the sorts of stories we do in Echo Bazaar in oh, sure. uh, Night Circus for a few structural reasons, but uh, uh, we've yeah we've certainly learned a lot in the in the last two years. Yeah, uh, the thing about Night Circus that uh, is the different that I also like is that it, it's almost not as much of a game as it is something like, you know, uh, an online experience or mm. something like that, you know, because there's not like a lot of game in it no. as much as uh, just kind of an adventure. That's Yeah, it's an, it's an exploration, I think, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's a, uh, I really love the artwork, though, for sure. Uh, so, uh, guy, Paul, it, it, it terrifies me how quickly he learns and uh, improves and the, the leaps and bounds he takes he's, he's, he's simply alarming and some of the stuff he's been doing recently is just incredible uh, so, so what can you tell us uh, and I know you probably can't say too much but what can you tell us about what's in store for Echo Bazaar um, like for instance right right now uh, the clicks don't seem to do much those are kind of like clans in an MMO they're, they're player groups I guess uh, Is can you tell us anything about what plans you have in store for those kinds of features yes uh cliques yes cliques as they exist in the game at the moment are really just a a, 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 a way for us to test the basic technology of, of having them and joining them and leaving them and reporting on them mm -hmm. um uh, so at the moment you could sort of be in a clique but it doesn't do very much uh but uh, we have very big very big plans for cliques in the in the fairly near future uh and there'll be um uh, much more collaborative. You'll you'll work with your clique mates to do uh, to achieve certain tasks, uh, and you'll uh, accumulate belongings for your cliques as well. Like you'll be able to build your clique headquarters uh, and things like that. And some of the things you can have for your headquarters are uh, terrifying and uh, hilarious. That sounds awesome, Chris. That does sound awesome. Okay. Yeah, we've got that's that's something we want to build on uh, quite a lot. We. One thing we wanted, when we started doing Echo Bazaar, we wanted to, the original kind of brief was, let's make a social game that isn't evil. Uh, and something that's sort of, we, we were thinking sort of like Mafia Wars, only not rubbish. Uh, but <laughs> quite quickly realised that unless you're going to be very intrusive and aggressive in your marketing, and we weren't, it's not actually that useful to have the trappings of a social game. And I think, I remember when you initially took a look at Echo Bazaar, Tom, I got an email from you saying, oh, that looks quite interesting, but I see I have to sign up to this uh, uh, this Facebook agreement here that let means you'll uh, uh, get your grubby fingerprints all over my family photographs and read all my private emails. <laughs> uh, and we 
we don't do those things. We don't, and we won't sort of tweet or post to your Facebook wall without your express permission each time, and we don't nag you to do it all the time. But because we were marketing ourselves as a social game, people sort of expected us to, uh, really. And that's not what we wanted to do and or how we wanted to do it. We would rather that you share bits of the game you like with your friends. That what That's what we think works, and we, we think we're quite a... Uh, what's the word? Uh, an acquired taste, uh, and you're probably best placed to know who else would like that acquired taste. Uh, so we don't want to broadcast. We'd rather it be done on a, an invitation basis. But it was like we were dressing up as Darth Vader, but refusing to use our dark force powers. <laughs> so we weren't force choking anyone, but people sort of assumed that we would at any moment start force choking them. And if they signed up to us, then they would. Uh, it would lead to fear, and fear would lead to anger, and anger would lead to hate, and hate would lead to the dark side. So we 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 decided to take off the, the big bucket helmet and the black cloak now. And uh, uh, and what we're really about being is a, is, a, is an RPG. Uh, Chris, for a guy who's working on a game that has so successfully avoided cliches, I cannot tell you how disappointed I am that you would resort to such an extended Star Wars metaphor. I apologize. I have to get it out here because if I tried to do that when I wrote anything in Echo Bazaar, Alexis would properly kill me. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> there is, there is a, a, a no mercy policy for Star Wars references. One, one got through once and it was not pretty. No, do not. Oh, you're kidding. Can you tell <laughs> You did, there was not actually an inadvertent Star Wars reference in Echo it Bazaar. Was, it was very subtle, but uh, uh, not. Uh, but it was as soon as it was noticed, it was it was crushed utterly. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, I am so psyched to hear that there's uh, click stuff coming, uh, and just uh, like like McMaster said earlier, the the sort of responsiveness and and the updates that have happened even in the last month. Uh, I just really like the direction you guys are going. I love the philosophy of the game. Uh, so I, uh, I want to throw one thing at you. Uh, and I want to, uh, you and I spoke a little bit about this in email, but one mm. of the things that I kind of wished when I first started playing echo bizarre, uh, is that it were a self-contained product like something like Darklands or King of Dragon Pass, which is also very text-based. You move through menus, you make choices, uh, and then it, it sort of spits out a new narrative based on your choice. Uh, I really wish that, given this great place that Fail Better has created, you know, this world of fallen London, I would love to see a self-contained game that I can sit down and play through in a couple of sessions and then play again to try new directions. So... Please tell someone over there to make like a cool iPhone game or something based in Fallen I, London. I will certainly pass it on. Yeah, okay. I, mean, I think we wouldn't be averse to doing something like that. I think that would be uh, that would be lovely. But it's it's all a matter of resources and uh, a, a, one of the things that worked for us about Echo Bazaar is we have had uh, this, all this time to learn and hone what we're doing and uh, get better at it and uh do things like clothe our children and live in houses in the meantime um sure. which i personally don't see as a kind of uh, a, a, a nice to have extra i see that as fairly fundamental so uh but yeah would resources allow i think we would love to do something like that and certainly there's no shortage of space in fallen london for telling more stories yes yes and i would like tom for you to tell me about your character okay so my character, uh, and I'm not sure where this started, but at some point I decided I was going to play like the equivalent of, you know, like maybe a paladin in an RPG <laughs> where you're like, I'm going to be the super good. Uh, so, I'm just to how that will work out for you. <laughs> 
Well, I have I have put an emphasis on I don't I don't want anything to do with uh, those bohemians and criminals. I accidentally every now and then I'll accidentally like get get a link going with them. I'll get in good with the faction and I'll do whatever I can to back away from that. I love that. So so I'm all about the uh, the church and the constables. Um, I love how the game how using your inventory and this kind of crafting system that also leads to new story beats, new bits of narrative. So one of the things I've been doing is trying to eschew wealth, and I'm going more for information and secrets. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I know somewhere down the line there are like relics that maybe take you to other places. So I'm trying to get in good with scholars. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm wanting to be uh, a very uh, uh, sort of upright, forthright, church-loving, constable-helping good guy. Uh, you know, there's all those secondary stats you get, so I'm, I'm trying to be subtle and magnanimous instead of ruthless and scandalous. I want oh. no part of those. Uh, right now, my current situation, I, I have a minor issue with wounds. Uh, I've, I've been a little injured after an unfortunate episode uh, in which I brought to bear a starveling cat to deal with, Uh, because I I had in my house, I had a vermin infestation. uh, And I was like, I I cannot let that stand. And I I ended up with a starveling cat at some point. I unleashed it. um, And the results, they hurt a little. You know, I got some wounds. (laughs) Uh, So, and by the way, I I wrote this One of the things when I knew that I was going to write a review of this, I kept like wanting to copy and paste text like, this is an example of great writing. And I noticed I was kind of playing differently. I wasn't just, like, enjoying it. It was like reading a book with a highlighter, and you're, you're constantly looking for things to highlight, and it almost affects the experience. So I was glad to finally publish the review and quit looking for great text and just enjoying it instead of copying and pasting it to another document so I could tell people about it. But knowing, Chris, that you were going to be on today, when I had that encounter with the starveling cat and the vermin in my house, I just wanted to read this one little bit of text. I mean, I it's uh, it's something I read it. And I was like, this is just such beautiful words. I just have to make a, a note of appreciation for this. So one of the things I love about Echo Bazaar is the writing. And just here's an example of a little bit of writing. So the starveling cat, I let him out. It goes crazy with all the rats in there. Uh, and the way you guys present this in the game is you describe the noise that I hear from behind the door where the starveling cat is as follows. It is, quote, the horribly meaty sounds of the kind that might emerge at midnight from the storeroom of a moon-crazed butcher king. I just love that. I mean, I, just love, I love the sound of it. I love saying it out loud. I love the idea of a butcher king, and I even more love the idea of a butcher king who is crazed by the moon and working at midnight. I mean, that's just such a great, that's just such a great way to create in my head the image of what's going on with whatever a starveling cat is behind that door and all those rats. Uh, yeah, so that's I mean, rats too, actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't have the starveling cat. I've just been chasing them around with my gun. Well, and that's one of the, that's one of the story beats is you can be quote troubled yeah. by vermin. It's it's a it's both a I story. Am. It's an attribute. Uh, it's yeah. Um, so there you go. That's what I'm doing in Echo Bazaar. And I also uh, like every now and then someone like I I 
I found at one point, I forget if it was from an opportunity card, but at one point I found myself, right now there are basically like five little areas you can move to. At one point I found myself in the forgotten quarter, and there is an option in your lodging to travel to different areas, and you can look at, okay, when I get this in my inventory or when I get this item or this stat, I can go to this place. Uh, for me and McMaster, I think we're still in the early game. Those are like mid and late game things. So I can look at all these lists of cool places I can go. But at one point, I found myself in one of those places, in the Forgotten Quarter. And I was like, oh, great, a new place has opened up. I'm going to run around and do all kinds of things. But first, let me go back and do this other thing that I was doing on Lady Bones Road. So I went back to Lady Bones Road. I did the other thing. And then I was like, okay, now let's go back to the Forgotten Quarter. And lo and behold my character had forgotten how to get to the Forgotten Quarter. <laughs> it was like it was like a one-time event, uh, and I, I love that. I love that you guys did that to me. You teased me with this cool new place, but I could only be there that one time. I know that I can get back there. I don't know. I think you might have to get relics. or something. I forget how you get back to the Forgotten Quarter, but I just love that I got to play around in this place, and then I didn't take advantage of it, so I have to go back later at another time. Uh, but... So uh, there you go. There's my character. Uh, if you're listening, I cannot recommend enough uh, Echo Bazaar. It's, it's just a great bit of work. Uh, so that concludes the We Love Echo Bazaar <laughs> part of this podcast. What? I'll be off it. We're not done with you, Chris, because mm-hmm. now we're going to talk to Chris Gardner, the gamer, as opposed to Chris Gardner, <laughs> the, the fellow who helps bring us Echo Bazaar. Uh, we are going to do our news stories of the week, but Chris, before we bring yours out, we are going to bring out Jason T. McMaster's news story of the week. What do you got for us? All right. My news story of the week is Notch wanting to fund Psychonauts 2. (laughs) That is pretty rad. Basically, uh... The other day, Tim Schafer was talking, uh, in an interview, he was talking about you know, Psychonauts 2, and, uh, and Notch saw this, and uh, he uh, tweeted that he would, uh, he tweeted to Tim Schafer, let's make Psychonauts 2 happen. Uh, and Notch, if you do not know, is the creator of Minecraft. His name is actually Marcus Pearson, or person, whatever. <laughs> Somebody, if you look him up, just look for Notch. It'll find him. Um, and uh, later on, uh, Stephen Dingler, XE.com founder, uh, and the guy who funded Costume Quest for the PC and Psychonauts for the Mac, uh, also tweeted uh, to Notch and Schaefer, let's move this discussion offline. And then uh, Double Fine released the statement, Tim and Marcus are talking, who knows what might happen. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool for fans of the original Psychonauts and fans of Double Fine. Now, uh, who here, because I am not one of those people, has played Psychonauts? McMaster, I'm assuming you have? Yes. Chris, are you, have you played Psychonauts? Yes, I have. I didn't finish it, but I did play it, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't did. finish it either, and it's been neither, a long time. I'm guessing neither of you got past the meat circus, am I right? Yeah, That's yes. correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, so how would you guys feel about a Psychonauts 2? Chris, does that do anything for you? I'm in favor of it, yeah. No, I think it was... Uh, I really enjoyed uh, Psychonauts. I'm terrible at platforming games, so that's why I didn't finish mm. it, but it was it was just something completely unique and different and genuinely funny and touching, and uh, yeah, I th- another one would be wonderful. And that's uh, yeah, that's how I feel about most of uh, Double Fine's games, even if I don't like personally 
enjoy them as much, their actual gameplay sometimes mm. as much. I always enjoy their sense of humor and uh, mm. their style. So yeah, I, I certainly agree. My my favorite thing about the story, McMaster, is this sense of uh, of Marcus Pearson as an eccentric millionaire who's made, <laughs> who's made he's made all this money on Minecraft, and by golly, he's going to spend it on games he wants to play that other people who he admires uh, make. <laughs> I love that's, that. Uh, yeah. That's pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. eccentric <laughs> pixel millionaire notch. Yeah. Yeah, because you hear like uh, I, as a big movie fan, I know that there was oh here we go back to Ayn Rand again. There was some nut who was a huge Ayn Rand fan oh. who who funded an awful movie adaptation of Atlas Shrugged, and he's just a crazy guy who loves Ayn Rand, and he wanted an Atlas Shrugged movie, so he threw a lot of money at it to make it happen. I, I didn't see the movie, I don't care about that, but I love the idea of video gaming having its own counterpart for that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you know what? Let's go around the table. I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Let's say that you are eccentric millionaires. What game project, and you can't pick Psychonauts 2 because Notch has already called that, what game project would you fund? And actually, I'll go first so you guys can think about it. I would fund, if I was an eccentric millionaire with, with Notch's money bags, I think I would get together the team who made the, the original Sacrifice uh, because uh, I, I'm sure they've gone their separate ways. They've been scattered to the four winds. It used to be shiny. Uh, I know one of them is actually working on Guild Wars 2 right now, but I would pull them off every project they're on right now. I would put them back together, and I would say, whatever you did to make Sacrifice so awesome, now, more than ever, we need a game like that. So I would, I would, make a, I would get those guys together to make a Sacrifice 2. McMaster, if you're an eccentric millionaire, what project are you going to fund? Um, well, this is going to be kind of a weird one. Okay. Uh, you remember a game called Disney's Stunt Island? Oh, wow. That's awesome, McMaster. That's one of my favorite games ever. I, I spent probably hundreds of hours as a teenager and uh, younger whenever uh, it came out a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Really? Uh, I can, Chris, I can, I can verify that McMaster is not pulling your leg. This is a real thing. McMaster, tell us, what is Disney Stunt Island? <laughs> Stunt Island is this game um, that you were a stuntman. And so you would go and you would fly these stunts, et cetera, et cetera. That was the game. Now, the part of the game that I actually enjoyed, I mean, the stunts were fun and everything. The part of the game that I, that I enjoyed and kind of what led to a lot of my later life career choices was that you get to not only film these things, you can also script tons of action, and then you can film them with virtual cameras, and then you could splice it all together with, like, virtual editing equipment. So uh, it had, like, a huge library of models. It had an island that you could pick all these different locations. Like, they had a bunch of sets built, but you could build your own, like I did a few times. And uh, you would put these... Uh, like, well, for me, it was, like, ludicrously ridiculous kind of, like, just crap, you know, that I would do. I thought it was hilarious, just the absurd. But, you know, of course, you could fly, like, real stunts. Like, uh, one time, you could fly anything, which I thought was incredibly hilarious, because uh, I would occasionally fly, like, there was a totem pole I flew for a while. Uh, I flew uh, an aircraft carrier for a few stunts. Um so, uh, yeah, it, it was just like you had total control over these little scenes. And, like, when Peter Molyneux's uh, The Movies came out, I was, like, really excited, but it was absolutely not what I was hoping for. Yeah. So I would fund uh, Stun Island 2 in a heartbeat. 
You know, McMaster, I think the latter-day equivalent of Stunt Island, it doesn't have the movie-making stuff nearly as, as polished. It's not nearly the focus that it was in Stunt Island. But I would say the latter-day counterpart to that, oh, I'm going to screw up the name. It was that last Banjo-Kazooie game. Nuts and Bolts, was it, where you build your, your vehicles and you do the challenges yeah. in the open worlds? It had yeah. a kind of a Stunt Island feel to it, I thought. Sure, yeah, it absolutely did. It just, yeah, I just, I, I missed the absolute freedom that Stunt Island had. Yeah. That was the great part, you know. All right, so McMaster, I hope you become a millionaire soon because I love your idea. <laughs> Thank you. Chris Gardner, you now, you're an eccentric millionaire. You've got uh, the same amount of money or more as Notch. What are you going to do with it? Uh, when I finish rolling around in it, I think <laughs> I was going to say I would love to get the Darklands team back together and have a new Darklands. Mm. Oh, snap. But... But it has been superseded because I uh, remembered that, in fact, my favorite game in the history of the universe is Beyond Good and Evil. And I would throw all the money in the world at um, Michelle Ansel to uh, make a sequel to Beyond Good and Evil. Now, I, that was that was floating around for a while, and wasn't there even a There's, cinematic yeah. trailer for it? Yes, like, there was, and there was like a mock-up of gameplay. I don't think it was actual gameplay, but it was like what they were aiming for with the gameplay, and there were sort of rumors that they were still working on it with a really small team, and they, they haven't announced that it's been cancelled or anything, but there were sort of some suggestions that if Rayman Origins did well, that might help the development of Beyond Good and Evil. Uh and I know when it came out, you no know, one bought it. Don't curse yeah. him. So uh, I, I can't see that it's an easy sell for him to, uh, uh, to to Ubisoft or anything. But I absolutely loved that game. It was it was such a uh, colourful and vivid and, and believable world, and I would love to spend more time in it. Now, what made that as a game work for you? Because I I confess I was one of the people who you know what I did play it a bit. But I ended up showing it to a girlfriend at the time, and she absolutely fell in love with it. And I feel like I played it because she was constantly playing it. I even saw the end of it. Like, I pretty much played it over her shoulder. Um, but for you, what made uh, – you mentioned the world, but what else made Beyond Good and Evil work so well for you? I think it's um, – I think it's that it – put very human emotion at the heart of the story and it had this big sort of epic thing of uh, alien invaders and, and government conspiracies and, and all that sort of stuff but at its heart was this uh, woman Jade who uh, uh, acted as a kind of foster parent for a, a load of orphans and it, it's the opening scene is her doing uh, kind of Tai Chi stuff uh, with one of these orphans on the uh, on the the lighthouse where they live, and it just it opens on this kind of moment of connection between these two people, mm -hmm. uh, and it keeps coming back to it. And all the way through the game, you can go back to the uh, the lighthouse, and there's always something a bit different happening there each time. And um, uh, as the game goes on and things start getting more dramatic and the stakes start to rise, uh, obviously you're more you're feeling more pressure to keep pressing on with the the plot and and, and thwarting this kind of dastardly villainous evil that's going on and um, I remember at one point I finished one mission and thought alright I better go back to the lighthouse and then I thought oh no there's this thing going on I really want to see what that is I won't go back to the lighthouse I'll go and do the thing so I went and did that thing and when I'd done it and I came back the lighthouse had been destroyed and the orphans had been kidnapped and I have never felt so distraught in a game before I felt I genuinely kind of missed an opportunity to see these characters that I'd come to care for uh, one more time and I'd almost reached for the reload button 
that, that mastered myself. And uh, I think when a game can engage you to that level, I think something special is happening. Chris, you could have been there for the orphans. You could have saved them. But no, you don't <laughs> no, go to the lighthouse uh, at was, one time and they get kidnapped. I, I was obsessed with my, my hunt for the truth. I know. You know what? I don't remember that sort of uh, – I'm glad to hear you describe that because I remember – her name was Jade, right? The heroine? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't remember that kind of maternal aspect about her. That's very cool. Uh, all right. So uh, I hope you get to be a millionaire as well. You know what? I hope we're all three millionaires and we can fund all three of these games. Uh, that would be, that'd be awesome. Uh, although I find that Chris is going to roll around in his money and get it all dirty first. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, let me go with uh, my news of the week. Uh, my news of the week is kind of old news, but it's got a, a recent development. Uh, Activision dropped a game in their uh, true crime lineup. I think they did two of those games that were both phenomenally unspectacular. Uh, they were basically Grand Theft Auto kind of ripoffs. And the third game in the series, I think it was the third, was going to be True Crime Hong Kong. Uh, but Activision, for whatever reason... Uh, decided, you know what, we're going to drop this, we're not going to do it. My guess is actually they, for their open world action needs, uh, they're focusing on those prototype games. So they're like, we don't want any more of this true crime Hong Kong, it's out of here. So the game had been in development uh, with a group in Vancouver called United Front Games for a while. So they've got this game, they don't have the true crime IP anymore, but they've got this Hong Kong open world, like Hong Kong cinema action game going, and they shop it around and they finally get Square Enix to pick it up. Uh, this happened last year, middle of last year, uh, and then we didn't hear anything for a while. Well, just today, uh, Square Enix has announced that, uh, of course, it's not true crime anymore. They don't have that IP. Uh, it's going to be called Sleeping Dogs. It will be out the second half of this year. Uh, and they released a kind of an odd teaser trailer for it, which is a, uh, a live-action cinematic. I mean, it probably will not appear in the game. There's no gameplay footage in it. It's just this really elaborately choreographed action sequence uh, set in Hong Kong with a fight in a kitchen and a cleaver figures prominently, and then a dude gets on a motorcycle and he races away, and it's very R-rated and there's blood and uh, very exciting stuff. You don't really see anything in the game, but you see the vibe the game is going for. Uh, so that just came out today. But I want to say the reason to be excited about what used to be True Crime Hong Kong and is now Sleeping Dogs uh, is that the developer, United Front Games, uh, they consist of a lot of former folks, including the design director, from what was my favorite game of 2006, another open-world game published by Rockstar, but it stands apart from a lot of what Rockstar does. It has some Rockstar vibe to it, but it also has a lot more heart and soul than Rockstar can usually manage. And I like to think, I don't know if this is the case, but I like to think that it has something to do with the lead designer who is now working on Sleeping Dogs, and that game was Bully. So oh, yeah. I feel that if you, if you like Bully, if you like whatever it was that was in there, uh, you can lay a lot of the credit at the feet of the design director, a fellow named Mike Scupa, who is now the design director for what is called Sleeping Dogs. Uh, and I'm glad to see Square Enix now. They've uh, announced, you know, it'll be out later this year. They've put a, apparently a fair amount of money into that trailer. That was not cheap. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of their bigger titles coming out in uh, 2012. Sleeping Dogs is a great name. 
You know what? It really is, isn't oh. it, Chris? Because mm. uh, it's not – it's it's like so ironic, you know, considering yeah. the kind of game it is. Uh, and it, it has to do with – you know, it's a familiar turn of phrase yeah, that everybody sure. knows. Uh, it really is, yeah. And I love, too, that it's not like, you know, Sleeping Dogs colon Hong Kong, you know. <laughs> Sleeping Dogs colon Let Them Lie. Uh, and I also just I really like some of the weird stuff that Square Enix di- does. One of my favorite games from this last year, year before, they they published Canaan uh, Lynch two, uh, which was really weird and had some odd stuff, and it had this weird like cheap YouTube aesthetic to the graphics. And Canaan Lynch themselves are very unconventional characters. Also very Hong Kong centric, uh, so I, I, I love the Square. You know, I think I think they're in good hands with Square Enix. Uh, so, all right. So that is my news of the week. Uh, does either of you guys share my fondness for Bully, Chris? You're English. Yeah. Like, I haven't played Bully. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, now Bully isn't set in England, but I know that you English people go to like prep schools, don't you? Isn't that how that? Oh, yes, we all do. Yes, it's uh, it's it's the law. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think of what's that uh, that Malcolm McDowell movie called If, like about how brutal oh. prep schools are and they make people like snap and and kill each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, actually, uh, speaking of Bully, I actually have the PlayStation Two Collector's Edition with the dodgeball. Wait a minute. Wait, wait hold on a minute. <laughs> There's like. It's actually uh, kind of uh, hard to find, so I'm happy about that. What What is that, and where can I get it? So it has dodgeball as an activity in it or something? Wait, there, I yeah, thought all it copies... comes with a dodgeball. Oh, you're talking about a real-world dodgeball. Yeah, it says bully on it, and I mean, it's blue. And, uh, yeah. Have you ever had it thrown at your head? No. I, no. Well, I, I think to really get the experience, you need to get your wife... <laughs> Take you outside. We don't want you to break anything in the house. She should take you outside. You have to stand completely immobile, and she needs to just huck it as hard as she can at your face, and then you will have the bully dodgeball experience. I had uh, I had braces and had to play a lot of dodgeball when I was in uh, school, mm-hmm. and that sucks. <laughs> you get hit in the face, you have to pull your lips off of your teeth. Oh, dear. It's I had – yeah. that's like when you have tubes in your ears and guys try to throw you in the pool. Yeah, yeah, terrible. <laughs> All right, I don't want to plumb uh, because I know that Chris is a product of the English educational system. I'm sure there's a lot of painful memories there. We don't want to plumb that right now. We are straying dangerously close to some childhood traumas, yeah. Well, in that case, Chris, let's just gloss over that and go to your choice for News of the Week. Uh so my choice for news of the week is the uh, what I guess uh, the internet is calling the Mass Effect Deception controversy. Ah yes. Now as a, yeah, considering the kind of game you guys do and your emphasis on tone, uh, this should be of note to you. Tell tell us about this. Yeah, I mean the reason this kind of interests me is because I feel a huge sympathy for everyone concerned. But the uh, the most recent Mass Effect novel, Mass Effect Deception. Uh, is the first one, I think, that's not been written by the the person who wrote the previous Mass Effect books and who was also, I think, the lead writer on the first two Mass Effect games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Mass Effect Deception was written by a kind of established science fiction author called William C. Uh, Dietz, Dietz. Um, mm. And the reason it's controversial is that uh, there are lots of details in it that are wrong. Uh, and there's... Uh, I... There's lots of sort of uh, stuff about physiology of aliens that are wrong and histori- history of the Mass Effect universe that are wrong, and uh, the 
uh, uh, fans of Mass Effect have taken this very, very badly, I think it's uh, safe to say. Uh, some of them have been sort of burning copies of it on YouTube and, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> other terribly effective forms of protest like that. <laughs> and I just feel, I don't know, I... Uh, you know, uh, but, not to sorry. break in, uh, but uh, I know one person's really happy about this, and her name is Jessica Chobot. Because <laughs> she is no longer the focus of the entire <laughs> over Mass Effect Three. That's true. <laughs> now, now, how do you how do you feel about this, Chris? Like, do you feel well, that this is silly, or that they have a point, or what's your overall take? I mean, I, I, I think I, I feel for everyone concerned. I mean, I think the 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 fans who play Mass Effect and then choose to buy a Mass Effect novel are clearly the person who people who are going to care very much about their characters and the backstory and all the little fiddly details. Yeah. Uh, so I understand that uh, this sort of thing would infuriate them. Uh, at the same time, you know, right, working playing with someone else's toys uh, uh, and working in a, a world that someone else has written is not easy. And I think on these sorts of projects, especially, often you're sort of writing uh, in parallel to while the games are being made and kind of details about the games might be changing while you're writing. Uh, and often the deadlines are really tight. And uh, it can't have been an easy, an easy gig. And then... I know from Bioware's side, this, they've, they've sort of extended apo- apologies to the fan base mm-hmm. because of it, and that can't have been easy for them either. And they, you know, these, uh, Bioware are very, very good at creating universes that people take very seriously and, and invest a lot of energy in. And uh, I just feel really bad for everyone. I just want to give them all a great big British hug. Chris, no. that's, I, I, you, it sounds like you were going so far out of your way to be kind, and uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I respect that. That's very nice of you. Uh, but I am astonished that, I mean, you make this bed, you lie in it. And the bed that BioWare and EA have made is a very intricate, detailed universe, and they want to feed into that universe with novels and games, and they, of course, want players to care about and pay attention to the details. And if they want players to care about those details, which they do, you play Mass Effect 3, they want you to care about the stuff in that codex, then I feel like they should at least care about it as well. And the fact that these errors, even looking over this document, you know, there's a there's a kind of a... It's like it's like Martin Luther nailing up the theses to the Catholic Church. You know, there's a Google there's a Google Doc with all of the sins of Mass Effect document or Mass Effect deception documented, uh, and they're they're sort of ranked by how many how serious each one is. And even if 90% of those are just nitpicky BS, I mean, the the 10% that remain that are egregious errors, and Bioware has acknowledged that some of them are. I just I am astonished that they would let it slip through, and I'm, I I feel bad for everyone involved, certainly. But I, I, I more feel that, that Bioware should be ashamed that they let that happen. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to sit here. Chris, you give them a kind English hug, and I'm going to sit here and give them a judgmental American glare. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that the, uh, all these errors in the Google document have been ranked says something about the laser-like <laughs> intensity with which uh, these fictions, uh, kind of the scrutiny that these fictions are subjected to by the fan base um and yeah i mean i don't know you know the details of the project and how deadlines worked and what the uh procedures for checking all the details were but a lot of this this is one of the perils of of doing stuff 
out of house, I guess, and one of the the, the challenges of it, and having uh, it kind of shows that having the books written by the writer of the game is sort of the ideal world, and that that is a tough act to follow. Right. Well, and and not only that, but EA is a huge company. You know, Bioware is internal to EA now, so we can talk about EA at large. Uh, EA is a huge company and should not let this happen. I, I have a friend of mine who who works for Disney, and her job at Disney is to look at all their various prop not all their various properties. I think she works mainly with like toys, uh, but there's a division at Disney that makes sure that. You know, Mickey Mouse doesn't wear the wrong color gloves or that the princess from Mulan doesn't say something that would be out of character. You know, if if you're interested, if you're trying to build an IP and you want people to take it seriously, you need to take it seriously as well. And I feel that that's what EA has failed to do in this situation. I think one of the difficulties is that the with with. Game universes right. are much more uh, detailed and in-depth than film universes. Sure. Uh, and the level of expertise required to spot a lot of these errors, uh, you will find it in two places. You will find it in probably the, the key writers on the project. And even then, you know, those key writers might be working on other projects at the moment. They've got a whole lot of stuff going on in their heads. Some of these details might have dropped out. And you will find it in the fan base. Mm-hmm. And uh, r- the writers, I think, generally can't uh, find the uh, uh, can't afford the time to become the level of expert on this stuff that the fans are. Uh, it's not surprising for fans to know more details about a universe than the person who wrote it. That makes me wonder, Chris, if this is a situation where they wanted to get William Dietz's name on the project, but they didn't want to bother an established writer with, like, pages of notes saying this would never happen. Like, if they just took whatever he sent in without, like, maybe that wasn't part of his contract. Like, you have to make sure this all fits in. We need your name on the book, but we're not going to bother you with all the details. I mean, really, as as a writer, too, you should have, I mean, if they're paying you, and I assume they probably pay the guy well, uh, I would think you would have a, uh, I don't know, a duty to check on certain things. You know, I'm not saying that you're going to get every little detail. Don't me wrong, but this is a pretty freaking huge list of stuff, and some of it is pretty real, uh, like ridiculous uh, stuff that you could, you know, that you would might want to know. Uh, I just don't, you know. And on top of that, surely someone read it, right? I mean, someone had to have read it. Maybe have someone that knows something about the game read it before you. I mean, it. sure, but then I, I guess they're not doing other things like working on Mass Effect Three and everything. I don't, I don't well, know. I think I, I just I, I noticed that in all the kind of publicity of this, I haven't read anything about how good the story is <laughs> or how good the writing is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not and sure I would think that would be kind of important. <laughs> I kind, you know, what you say that, but I kind of doubt that figures into the equation very much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it is interesting to note, though, that uh, EA has said that maybe, I don't know if this has happened before, the novel will be patched. Uh, version the, the reprint will address some of the errors, apparently, the second run. Uh, oh, I went to uh, pre-order the board game Mage Knight and, uh, or for their next uh, run, and uh, they're, they're patching the rule book, so I don't see why a novel couldn't be patched. Mm. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> We're looking at a bold new age, Tom. That is true, yes. I'll have to adjust. <laughs> you All can right, patch so, iBooks. <laughs> so those are our news stories of the week. Let's get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. What are our games of the week? McMaster, guess who's going first? His name starts with a J. 
No, for um, <laughs> Julio. Do we have a Julio? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Julio's not with us this week, so you're next in line. Oh, uh, was he down by the schoolyard? Anyway, my game of the week is not Tom's game of the week. Uh, Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. It mm. wasn't the Reckoning, though. Like you said, it's just reckoning. Wait so. a minute, are you sure? It's not. It's, yeah, it's just reckoning. Kingdoms of Amalur, reckoning. Yeah, you know what? I think you're right. That is a good point. Uh, and I'm only a couple to three hours in. So, hey, I just uh, I'm still in the kind of the honeymoon phase, but uh, I like it so far. It, mm-hmm. It's very fable. In fact, it's very very fable, except you have a lot of every other game ever's. Uh, mechanics put in it, mm-hmm. uh, which can be good and uh, can be bad. Uh, some people I've talked to really hate the graphics. Uh, they don't really offend me so much. There is a lot of bloom. Don't get me wrong. It's bloomy. Uh, but yeah, I, I've liked the action so far. And I've actually wanted to ask you, Tom, since uh, maybe you can talk a bit more about it now since the game's out, mm-hmm. how do you feel about Kingdoms of Amalur? Uh, I'm middling on it. It does some things. Ultimately, I I wasn't really fond of it. Um, However, I really want it to do well for those guys. It's one of those things where I'm kind of glad I'm not (laughs) writing a review because I think I would be pretty harsh ultimately. Uh, But it's, it's, it's... It's kind of crucial that 38 Studios is an independent group. Uh, EA is publishing the game, but they're still an independent developer. Uh, And they have a lot riding on this. I know they have other projects going. Uh, They have a lot of talent over there that I really like. So even though I wasn't crazy about the game, I really hope it does well. Um, I, I I wasn't crazy about a lot of the character development stuff. Uh, the world building uh, and the quest system never really clicked for me. Um, it does make a fair... I will grant you, McMaster, and I'll be curious if this bears up for you. It makes a pretty decent first impression. I know a lot of people criticize the demo, but as far as like pushing into the game world without the limitations of the demo, um, early on there's some really cool, exciting stuff there. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've really liked just wandering around after the tutorial area. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed... Just kind of going wherever I felt like, or you know, I'm not rushing through the quest. Just uh, I found like a couple of little caves on the side, etc. And I've enjoyed that part of the game. I'm playing like a magic user, and it's kind of novel so far. Uh, have you done the? So they do a cool, weird, well, cool slash weird, I guess we'll call it, little thing where there's like magic user lock picking. Have you been doing any of that? No, uh, because I, I don't get the lockpicking. I, I haven't spent a lot of time with it yet, uh, but I, it's kind of weird. Well, there's regular lockpicking, and they're, they're like magic traps. I forget what they call it. Is it wards oh. or something? There are magic traps that you can diffuse that's the oh. equivalent of lockpicking. So it's like oh, magic. Oh, no, I haven't done that. Yeah. I haven't done that yet, no. Yeah, I've, uh, but no, I, I like the combat so far as well. Um, that seems to be kind of their biggest selling point. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's very action-y, which is what reminds me uh, overall of uh, Fable, uh, is just the combat's feel. Fable, and they do, unlike Fable, like Fable seem to be afraid to get too fancy, uh, and that's not really the case with Kingdoms of Amalur. No. They, they, they mentioned a lot in their preview stuff, and I think this is a fair comparison, they mentioned God of War a lot. Like I think they want sure. a more in-depth, action-y God of War with combos Whoa. and cool variations and, and weapon choices you can make. <laughs> 
what reminds me of God of War so far is uh, every time you know you get a kill, you have to like do that button pounding thing for extra experience, and that's uh, kind of irritating. But at the same time, it's very God of War. It's very God of War, and it's 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 optional. But I also I also I also thought it was weird how. It was uncharacteristically grisly. <laughs> like you've got a very, very cartoony, cheerful, World of Warcrafty looking, fably looking, friendly fantasy world, and you, you know, rip the organs out of a, out of a. And a then Podfarland shows up. <laughs> exactly. so, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what it feels like because it's like you know, it's like the intro, dude. You get dumped down a tumble on top of a bunch of putrefying dead people. So it's like. <laughs> Okay, Todd. All right, I see you. Good. We know you're involved. So it's <laughs> it's just yeah. oh god, Todd. Um, and the thing is, I, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of McFarlane. I'm not a huge fan of our Salvatore. But uh, it is interesting to see a world designed by somebody that actually you know is a writer. Yeah, the, it seemed to work out pretty well. I mean, the story's. So far, like, just the talking part of it is really forgettable, though. Um, I, I know I, I skip a lot when it comes to the conversations. I, I don't wait to listen or, you know, whatever. I'm just like, okay, scan, 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 skip, because it, it gets wordy, which is something that actually drives me nuts in a role-playing game. It gets wordy, and what's even worse, McMaster, is I don't mind wordy if eventually some of the quests pay off if I read those words. Uh, yeah. I I really thought they dropped the ball on, on the the quest and this is something that only as you're playing longer i think becomes apparent but there's just no like i think of so many games lately that do cool clever different things with quests and and uh here it just always seemed like i gotta walk to this point and then i'm done uh like every quest was pretty much just a waypoint and that that after a while that that really starts to you can really see that there's not a lot of thought put into it when you're just walking to waypoint after waypoint. Uh. Uh, the thing, too, is that playing the game feels like playing a greatest hits of game mechanics. It really does. It's like <laughs> everything is in there. Uh, it's like they played just every game from the last ten years and like, well, we're putting that in there. Yeah. Uh, there's like... Reagent gathering, blacksmithing, potion making, uh, God, just so much stuff. It's very, uh, very kitchen sink y. Yes. And, um, you know, and it's like they do everything pretty well. (laughs) But they don't, (laughs) and some of it maybe not as well. But, like, the things they get right, they do well, but it's not like the greatest thing. You know, it's kind of like a, there's a, the, Actually, Chris, you, you'll probably be familiar with uh, the Mighty Boosh. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, there's a, an episode where they have uh, this Cockney character in it. And, well, they have music in every episode because uh, it's uh, based on a, a band of sort of. Uh, and th- they have this episode where they have this song that's kind of like this retro futuristic thing, and they say, you know, it's a little bit of the past and a little bit of the future comes together to make something not quite as good as either. It, it kind of ends up having that feel to me. It's like, it's like I, I enjoy the game so far, but it's it's just not good at any one thing. It does well. At, uh, it does at least okay at just about everything. Now, now, Chris, will you end up playing Kingdoms of, Kingdoms of Amalur? Is that up your your gaming alley? I well, I'm a huge RPG fan, so I kind of had one eye on it, but. Um... Uh, firstly, I'm still only a fraction of the way through 
Skyrim and suspect oh. that will take me about a thousand years to finish. Uh, and <laughs> the, all the sort of um, uh, developer diary videos of Kennedy's of Amala I saw didn't they, they did very much convey that kind of kitchen sink feel. It looked like a bit of a game stew. And I didn't see anything that really kind of leapt out and said, yes, this is the thing you must, uh, you must play it for. I had a question, actually. The, you said you were playing a magic user. How does that work with all the emphasis on combat? <laughs> yeah, this is not your normal magic user. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you, you, you know, like, you can cast spells, but there's, like, a cooldown. So, basically, when I'm playing a magic user, I'm hauling ass. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm throwing spells when I can, and otherwise I'm shooting arrows. And you also have a shield that, like, appears out of nowhere when you block. Uh, so, I use that some. Uh, and like you, you can actually um, specialize in staffs and uh, stuff like that, so you can like beat people with a staff much better. So there's a lot of uh, physicality in that. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's a great way to put it. Physicality. It's not, it's not your typical magic user who has one d four hit points and has to stand oh, no. back and uh, can only wear cloth armor. I mean, these are definitely, as far as magic users go, these are these are bruisers. So yeah, I did like. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to see how the uh, the card thing turns out. Like, uh, you yeah. run into these guys, fate weavers or whatever, and they they uh, use cards to tell fate, etc. And as you level up, you like pick different cards for your um, for your class or your classes. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a uh, other than like the leveling. God, it just it really does feel like Fable. It's almost like after it, let's say for instance Peter Molyneux instead of like removing half of the game mechanics in Fable 3 he had like added a ton I don't know it's just it, it's crazy alright so uh, Kingdoms of Amalur The Reckoning your your choice for game of the week not my choice for game of the week and it sounds like Chris has a lot of Skyriming to do before he can get around to it <laughs> yes indeed yeah and I do it have to might say, be my game of the week in about 2018. <laughs> uh, yeah. Skyrim was one of the things that kind of hurt Kingdoms of Amalur for me because I really liked some of the quest design stuff in Skyrim. Uh, well, I think Witcher 2. I mean, I, I can't play yeah. anything after Witcher 2 and go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, but, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, my choice for Game of the Week, I don't, you know what, I don't even know what, I had a bunch of little choices, and uh, I was going to pick like three mini-games of the week, but I'm not going to do that, I'll just roll this out. Uh, all right, so there are a lot of board games that are being ported to the iPhone. Uh, Chris, are you much of a board game player? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, I just didn't know if we were going to have to leave you behind on this. So, oh, uh, no, now, no, I'm you all the way, baby. Now, I'm not talking about like Monopoly and Risk. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, there is a there is a, a version uh, for the iPhone of Ticket to Ride, which is amusingly called Ticket to Ride Pocket, which is a very cute thing to call it. Uh, and it actually came out a while ago, but they recently patched in support for uh, what is uh, clumsily called asynchronous multiplayer. And all that means is I can play a multiplayer game without having to constantly like sit there and wait for the other guy to take his turn. I can take my turn, I can walk away from the game, and it will save its state until it's my turn again, and then I log in. Uh, this simply means people can play all at once, and they don't have to all be there at the same time. So, uh, I, a couple of things come to mind playing Pocket Ticket to Ride on the iPhone. Uh, first of all, let me ask both of you. McMaster, do you know Ticket to Ride? 
Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, yeah, I have, uh, I have the Markin or Marklin version uh, board game, and I also have the iPad version of the game. And Chris, do you know Ticket to Ride? Yes, I do. Who doesn't love board games about trains? Well, yeah. you know, I like most of them. I don't. I think I'm going to say I think Ticket to Ride is kind of a miserable game. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> boring. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I lose it a lot because. Of, yeah. <laughs> now, now, not because of, not because of losing it. I, I just feel that. Uh, I have a couple of issues with it, especially the default release on the map of America. I think the map of America is terrible. I mean, it's what a lot of us think of when we think of the the golden age of railroads. So of course, we want to play in America. But it's just an awful map. Um, they later introduced other maps. And the, the one that I own here is a map of Europe. And it's got. It seems like it's much more careful about the gameplay. I really like how it's balanced. They add some cool mechanics for ferry boats and tunnels and stations. You know, none of that stuff is in the basic America game. Um, so that's one of the problems I kind of have with this iPhone version is it's just the stupid, boring America map, which I am so over. I don't want to frickin' play Ticket to Ride on the America map anymore. Um, but more to the point, as a multiplayer game, it is really weirdly paced uh so you guys have played ticket to ride so you know how it works for folks who haven't played when you take a turn a lot of times what you're doing is you're drawing a couple of cards and then the other other guy draws a couple of cards and people are just drawing cards until somebody uses their cards to start building routes and then all things break loose but as far as a multiplayer game on the iphone it just goes on forever with nothing happening just take two cards take two cards take two cards and I, so I've got a couple games going that are just I just am bored to tears waiting on somebody <laughs> to do something, and then in a way there's this kind of like waiting on someone to make the first move vibe to it, and I guess that's that could be called suspense maybe, uh, but just the pacing is so weird in, in Ticket to Ride. So you I'm can, not. Um, you can buy other maps on at least on the iPad version. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I don't I don't play on the U.S. map. That's the jerk map. I play on a. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I, I like. No, it is map. the jerk map. I, agree. I like that map. Uh, no, um, I play on. Uh, I play on the Europe map a lot. Actually. Yeah, that's the one you should play on. Well, I, this, I, this I, all I, goes to show you that your ancestors never should have left. <laughs> we should have stuck around, and it would. Yeah, uh, you well, wouldn't have lame ticket to ride maps. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. yeah, no, we. Uh, I. Uh, the one that I own, like the board game version one, isn't on here, which is the the map of Germany, which uh, I like that one. But uh, it's a, uh, yeah, you can play uh, on here. You can play Europe or uh, the Swiss map yeah, yeah, or yeah. Uh, USA 1910 expansion. Well, wait a minute. So are there are the the tunnels and the ferry boats and the stations in there as well, McMaster? Um, I mean, you can't very well have the Europe without at least the tunnels and yeah, the ferries. Oh, yeah, 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 you can, uh, yeah, they're on here. Or, oh, like, at least the sake. tunnels and stuff are. I see them on here right now. All right, well, it, so. well, then one of two things is the case here. Either I'm an idiot, and that's entirely plausible, or it's one of those things where the iPhone version is the second-rate red-headed stepchild uh, uh, version of the game. As it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, well, that's my game of the week, and it, not because I'm super fond of it, uh, just because I wished... I, you know what? I guess I need an iPad. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> three, hey, three's coming out, and everybody's saying in a couple of months. I'm not getting a freaking iPad. I'm fine with my iPhone. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, that leaves Chris. Chris, what is your choice for game of the week? So now I've had a last-minute change of heart. 
Uh, oh, wait a minute. Is that allowed? Yeah. You know I guess there's nothing. There's no rule. I don't see in the book any sort of rule preventing that. Oh, yeah. As long as it's not breaking any rules. I, so I was going to say uh, uh, Battleheart, which is a uh, lovely little kind of squad-based tactical RTS on the uh, iPad and iPhone. Um, but having uh, listened to you talk about Ticket to Ride as, as... Wait, hold that thought. Hold that thought one second, Chris. Please say the name of that game again. Battleheart. God, I love that. One more time. Battleheart. What's, what's, what's happening here? No, it's just awesome. I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying your <laughs> accent and you saying the word Battleheart. I, just, I, wish, I wish I sounded like that. I, I just say Battleheart. I wish I did, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so instead of, uh, of Battleheart, uh, what, what are you changing your pick to? Bringing a much-needed element of class to quarter to three. Yes, um, I'm, uh, well, you're talking about uh, Ticket to Riders. Uh, stoked my unnatural board gaming lusts. So... Uh, in fact, my game of the week is something else I've been playing, which is the uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, what do they call it, living card game, uh, uh-huh. Final Fantasy Games. Uh, and it's on, which, it's on the iPhone? It is not on the iPhone at all. <laughs> it is purely a board game. If it, can, if it did exist on the iPhone, I would be very, very happy. And uh, this is one reason I was so excited to see, what was it called, Elder Signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, which yeah, is uh, that's a Final Fantasy, uh, sorry, a Fantasy Flight right, game right. as well, and and uh, I I didn't actually I don't actually like that game very much, but having seen that come out on the iPhone and iPad gives me hope that they're going to uh, do a load more of their catalogue on there as well. Well, now uh, tell us. So this is, a, if I'm not mistaken, it's a cooperative collectible card game, right? Uh, it's it is cooperative. It's a it's a living card game, which means it's not collectible. It's you get everything you need in the base set, and then there are um, extra packs that you can get but they're not they're not randomized at all um they just add into the base set sort of like something like uh, ascension or um dominion right or right. something um so it's 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 kind of on the wallet than uh, than a collectible card game uh, but the idea is you uh you play uh heroes most of which are characters from middle earth um going on uh uh, going on quests and fighting monsters and uh, exploring kind of familiar locations from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And it's a uh, it's a beautifully designed and implemented game. And it's I think it's probably the best board game I've played for conveying a sense of story and narrative. Uh, and when you finish a game, you'll... You, if, if you can find a friend who's willing to stay around and listen to you, you could tell them what happened as if it were a story. Rather than sort of saying, and then I, you know, took this piece and moved there, um, uh, and it, it even has a manages to convey a sense of kind of drama and and tension uh, uh, as you as you play. It's uh, it, it's big and it's complicated and uh, it's written by Fantasy Flight Games, so the rules are basically incomprehensible. Um, <laughs> if you go yeah, online, yeah, God. If you go online and watch their their tutorial videos, those are fantastic. Um, and I'm, I'm completely in love with it. And you can buy little um, expansion packs for it, each of which is a new quest to go on and gives you a load of extra kind of themed, uh, themed cards that you can uh, incorporate into the, into the deck. Okay, so you know what, Chris? You're, you're talking about this and you're describing it, and all that's going on in the back of my head is, well, for Pete's sakes, why don't you guys do something like that with Fall in London? Well, make a board game. <laughs> make a, an LCG. Dad Gummit, you could have like a Tomb Colonies pack, a, a Rubberman pack. You could have a Lady Bones Road pack. Good golly, do that! Be, well, yeah, you should do I that. Would, 
I would describe that as a, a, a different area of expertise from <laughs> what we've got. We would have to learn a whole lot of new stuff to do that. But yes, if yeah, that would that would, we, we, I'll sort that out for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, there, there is. Uh, there's another game, uh, to hear you describing again uh, how it makes a great story and narrative, there was a game that I don't think did very well, and I, I'm not sure I even recall what it was called, but it was a, another, I think it might have been a bona fide CCG, I don't know that it came in discrete packs like you're describing, but there was a Call of Cthulhu themed card game from about 10 years ago that yes. was that same kind of thing, and it had stories, yeah. like you would do like a, I think there was like a story card that would come out, and if I'm yeah. not mistaken, like you and another player would have to like use decks or draw cards to accomplish the story? It sounds like you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. No, I, I had this. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Was it called Mythos? Yes, very good. Oh, you're yes. a godsend, Chris. Thank you. Yes. Yes, that was... Yeah, that was an... No, it didn't do it. It came out during the collectible card game Glut, didn't it? And it just got buried under all the other stuff that was out uh, at that time. But no, it was a really interesting game. Yeah. So, and it sounds a bit like the, uh, the Lord of the Rings LCG is in that vein, kind of? Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the closest thing. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. That's probably the closest thing I can think of to it. Yeah, yeah. It's like I say, not collectible, so you don't have to sink endless, uh, endless. Oh, you, you use dollars over there, don't you? endless dollars into it to uh, uh, to accumulate it. But we're well, um, certainly not going to sink euros into it. <laughs> <laughs> we still use pounds. <laughs> uh, the uh, seat between us and them, we're not affected at all. It's all right. That's right. Keep telling yourself that. <laughs> Uh, so I'm curious, though, one of the things that has happened to me recently, and this might just be my own particular affliction, uh, but I think I have lost interest in cooperative board games and card games because of uh, a, a game called Battlestar Galactica, which is ostensibly cooperative, but it has this traitor mechanic. So there's this underlying, unknown, almost psychology-based adversarial aspect to it that when I play something like Arkham Horror or Pandemic, uh, that I feel is missing. Uh, it, do you think that uh, the Lord of the Rings card game, like, like, how does it work as a cooperative game? Is there any, does somebody win? Nobody wins, right? Uh, no, nobody wins. You, you win or lose as a, as a team. Uh, it's, I've, I've, played it, I've played two games of it. Um, you can play it solo. Uh, or you can play it uh, cooperatively with someone else. Uh, I've played a couple of cooperative games, and it's been really, it's been really nice because the the difficulty really ramps up when you're when you've got extra players in. Uh, it accelerates the rate at which kind of threats come out onto the board, and you have to work together very closely to overcome them. Uh, so if you manage to beat a, a, a quest, you get a real sense of accomplishment from it. So it, 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 to hear you describe it, though, it just sounds like I'm playing my cards, and like if I'm playing with a McMaster, he's playing his cards, and like how do we work together? We're just both drawing cards out of our decks, right? Um, you'll so the the deck is kind of subdivided into four themes. Um, there's a like a tactics theme which represents warriors and fighters and leaders, and there's a law theme which represents knowledge and healing, uh, and generally each of you will have one of those themes. Uh, uh, for your deck so for a start you're doing different things and you have different okay. strengths while you're playing uh, so if I'm playing the tactics deck and monsters are coming out I'm going to be the one fighting most of the monsters mm-hmm. uh, but if I'm playing with the law person he's probably going to be healing my fighters and he's probably going to be doing a better job of actually moving us through the quest uh, and exploring locations as we as we come across them it's, it sounds uh, like classes in an RPG like you need a tank you need a healer that, I mean no. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's that's exactly how that um, that side of it works. Ah. And it's it's quite interesting that you don't. It doesn't work that you take uh, a whole turn and then your partner takes a whole turn. Uh, 
a turn of play involves you um, alternating uh, phases. So you'll both do one phase, sort of playing some cards, then you'll both do a, an exploration phase, then you'll both do like a, uh, a combat phase. Um, so, and they've been very clever about building into the card mechanic opportunities for you to be involved in each other's turns. Hmm. So you're never just sitting there for kind of 50 minutes while your uh, uh, your partner has all the fun. You're always discussing form, forming plans, and you have to work together to beat uh, the challenges that that come out. So no, it's it's what I found. What I really enjoyed about playing it cooperatively was the whole game was a, a, a conversation uh, that we were trying to solve. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, but what the, the my biggest problem with it is uh, that I have a three-year-old. So if I have a hundred <laughs> cards all laid out in very specific piles, that that does not work. Uh, so, and having played Ascension on the iPad uh, and seen the glory of asynchronous um, multiplayer, a, asynchronous multiplayer to me, me to me means you can play this. If it's just multiplayer, it means you cannot play this. So uh, for to be able to have the uh, the Lord of the Rings game on iPad done like Ascension would be that that, that would be my dream. Well, it's a small happy. dream, but it's my dream, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> Keep the dream, chase that. I will chase that dream with you because, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> isn't Elder Sign Omens the only thing Fantasy Flight has done for the iPhone? So far, yes. Yeah. And it came out just, I think, a few weeks after the the board game was released. I think it was almost a simultaneous release. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong there, but. Um, I, I'm really hoping that they were using it as a, a kind of test case to see how it did. And I hope it's doing brilliantly, even though I don't like it. And I, uh, I think the production values on it are, are astounding. Yeah. Um, so I, I, they've got such an incredible back catalogue of, uh, of games that would be fantastic on the iPad and iPhone. So is the card game is just called, did you say Lord of the Rings LCD? Is that Lord of the Rings Living Card Game. Yeah, I think that's the one. And there's there's lots of little expansions for it. And I think they're just about to do another, they've just done a great big expansion for it called um, Mines of Moria. And I when thought. you buy it, you buy a base set and then you can what, buy additional quests, you called them? Yes, they, they come in uh, quest packs. So you get a, a, a whole new quest and you normally get a new hero and then a load of cards for each of the four deck themes that you can uh, incorporate into your deck with every uh, expansion. And they, one of the interesting things about those quest expansions is they form part of a grander narrative. So there's, the first one is called oh, The Hunt for Gollum, I think. And it's all about tracking Gollum across the, uh, the lands of, of uh, Middle-earth. And uh, there are seven individual decks uh, that form part of it. So you're playing sort of seven chapters in a, in a bigger story. So they're really keeping this sense of telling a narrative for the whole game. McMaster, are you in on this? Have you played this? No, uh, it sounds interesting. Though. Mm, it's really good. Do you know offhand, uh, and again, I'll, I, you'll probably know it in euros, but what does a base set cost? Do you know? Uh, I, uh, what do we do? I think it was like £25 or so, which is probably $13 million. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like 50 60 bucks, I think, here. Yeah, I'm just looking it up now, but it's uh, it, it it felt like a very reasonable investment to me for what you get. You get a big chunk of stuff in the base uh, the base game. Dadgummit! I almost hate hearing about stuff like this because I know that I know that whether I get it now or later, I'm probably going to end up getting this. <laughs> so it's like I, I should get it now. <laughs> I don't th- I don't think you'll regret it. It's very very good. Right. Yeah, twenty seven pounds it says here. So yeah, about yeah forty bucks something like that. All right, McMaster, let's you and me go in on a base set. Sounds good. 
All right. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm glad someone went uh, uh, tabletop gaming. It's always nice to have that represented. Tell me one more time. What was the name of that iPhone game you mentioned? That little tactical combat thing? What was that called? <laughs> Battleheart. Do you want me to record this and send it to you? <laughs> <laughs> I just want that. I want that to be my ringtone. Yes. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It's been nice. I don't, McMaster, maybe you can uh, address this. Have we ever had someone with a cool accent on the Quarter to Three Games podcast? You know, I don't think so. Well, at least, uh, no, yeah, I don't think so, no. Yeah. So, so, Chris, you now hold the distinction as the guest with the coolest accent that we have ever had. Well, I, I, will, uh, I would like to thank my mother and uh, <laughs> uh, God and other people. The, the trophy will be sent in the mail. Yes. So, well, Chris, thank you very much, and uh, seriously, you. best of luck with uh, Echo Bazaar. I, I just am so pleased with what you guys are doing. I'm so looking forward to hearing what you guys have in store, and uh, I I need to do something about my wounds from that starveling cat now. Well, I'm enormously pleased that both of you and Sarah uh, enjoy it so much. That's really it. That uh, made us very very happy. Great. Uh, so, McMaster, what do we have next week, and and is there potential for another cool accent with our guest next week on the podcast? Next week is uh, Jason Cross. Oh and, no, uh, that, that dude's no, yeah. He's, no, he's just kind of a jerk. I don't, I don't mean that. He's got a <laughs> Jason. Jason Cross has as generic an accent as you could ever yeah. hope to hear. Yeah. No, he, he's a good guy. I'm looking forward to talking to him again. All right. So, uh, those of you listening. Uh, please, I will give you, next time I see you, a dollar if you rate us on iTunes and like us on Facebook and donate a dollar to the quarter of three, uh, our donate button. <laughs> so that's what you get for those three actions is a personal dollar from me. I just want to make that clear. Uh, and thank you for listening. And uh, join us next week with Jason Cross. Uh, and we will see you then. Good night, everyone. All right.